Well, good morning, Castleton Church family. So good to be back with you. My family and I had a great time away on vacation in Michigan. I can see why so many of you just love that place. Our kids are now counted among those who can't wait, wait to get back around the lake uh, next summer. So thank you for the opportunity to get away and for allowing our family to really relax and uh, get some restorative time together. I also wanna thank Alfie Mose uh, for filling in in the pulpit last Sunday. Uh, thank you, brother, for preaching faithfully and for allowing this pastor not to think about the sermon on the Sunday he gets back. Uh, that really helped in the relaxation process also. Uh, you may have remembered something from Alfie's sermon last week. A few of you asked questions about uh, a, a application he made related to the transference of guilt um, as it related to that passage in 1 Thessalonians. I just want to take a moment to expand a little bit on that thought. Um, we certainly want to be, as Christians, the sort of people that are thinking according to the word, not according to the world. So it's understandable that we would be looking for spots in the Bible that can inform how we engage in the public square. And right now, issues related to race and racial tensions are on the forefront. I've been extremely helped by Pastor Kevin DeYoung's work on this. He wrote a series of articles called Thinking Theologically About Racial Tensions. I'm gonna send you one of those articles, uh, the one related to sin and guilt in our e-news this week. It, uh, I highly encourage you to read it and prayerfully consider it. I found it very, very helpful. I think it's safe to say everyone can agree after looking at the biblical data that there are some cases where guilt can be transferred between groups or people, and there are some cases where they cannot be. Uh, you can think of a very uh, gospel 101 example. Our guilt is transferred to Jesus Christ as we believe in him with, by faith. He gets our sin and our guilt, and in return, we get transferred his righteousness. So in that example, as taught in Romans uh, 5, uh, Jesus is the recipient of our transferred guilt. You, you can also think of it the opposite way. We are on the receiving end of a transfer of guilt from our first father, Adam. That's also taught in Romans 5. We get his sin nature as well as the guilt from that fall back in the garden. So in some cases, it absolutely is possible for there to be a transference of guilt. Now, there are other cases where it's not possible for that to be the case, and it takes discernment to understand the difference between the two. You can think of the book of Acts. Pastor DeYoung does a good job tracing through that book how the Apostle Paul interacts with different groups of Jews in his travels. It's interesting because some of the Jews he charges with the guilt for the killing of Jesus in Jerusalem, and others, he does not. So it's safe to say that simply being a member of an ethnic group or of some other sociological group does not automatically transfer the guilt uh, to a person. And it takes us some work to sort out uh, the reasons why and the reasons why not. I, I know this is a sensitive and controversial topic, but as those who believe that there is no guilt, there's no condemnation left for those in Christ Jesus. 
We shouldn't have any fear about paying careful attention to what the word says about this. So I encourage you to spend the time to read the article and consider its applications for how you think about some of our public square engagement. I'm so excited for us this morning in our fellowship and our worship. We are finally here, our first Sunday back in the building. It's been a long journey through this COVID-19 season. And I know our difficulties are certainly not over yet, but the Lord has provided grace upon grace. I'm so pleased that we are able to have a physical gathering inside our building this morning. Now, you may notice that uh, one of those things we're going to have to extend grace on is, in fact, this sermon. I'm preaching from a video screen, and right now I'm preaching into this camera, and it's Friday morning when I'm recording this. Uh, That comes as direct advice from my doctor in relation to my asthma and some of the risk factors I have related to COVID-19. I don't love it, but uh, preaching into a camera is better than not preaching to you at all. And uh, I, I much prefer to be in person and without a mask, but that's just not possible at the moment. But I'm resolved to worship joyfully and to make the most of the fellowship that we can have. And I hope you will join me in that resolution to use this to the maximum of the ability we can to encourage and exhort each other in faith in Christ Jesus. And with that, let's turn our attention to our passage this morning. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 3, 5, as it was already read. A preacher once said this. He said, I am a preacher, and yet I have no audience. That wasn't spoken by a pastor lamenting preaching into a camera during COVID-19. It was by a pastor named Wang Mindao, a Chinese pastor that lived during the communist takeover of China. He had resisted the pressure from the Japanese when they were in control of China to compromise on the gospel. He was a prophetic voice, an evangelist, and a pastor of a church that was growing and successful by any measure. But then the communist party started putting pressure on Pastor Mindao. They tried to get him to preach the communist version of the gospel, which he resisted. He resisted so strenuously that one day they took him and his wife and took them from the church in handcuffs and took them straight to prison. A faithful shepherd ripped from his flock. What a heart-rending experience, a, a difficult affliction imposed upon him and his church by that forced absence. There are many barriers to a church's joyful fellowship. Some of them are put on the churches uh, by hostile governments, like the Chinese government in Pastor Wang Mindao's case. Other times, it's more mundane matters. Things like illness, or busyness, or travel that keeps people away from their church family and in so doing, harms the fellowship of our local church. And yet, as we look at a passage like this one, and even as we examine our our own hearts, I'm convinced that each and every one of us will know this truth. 
that we need the joyful fellowship of our church no matter how difficult it is to attain. We need the joyful fellowship of our church no matter how difficult it is to attain. Our passage shows us the Apostle Paul in just such a situation. Through absence and affliction, he is kept from the Thessalonian church that he cares for so deeply, rending his heart and inflicting suffering upon him and the church itself. And yet Paul will do absolutely anything to reestablish their joyful fellowship in whatever way he can. As we look at his example, we will see two strategies that we ourselves can use to make sure that we participate in the joyful fellowship of our church. Those two strategies are as follows. First, how to get around the roadblock of absence. How to get around the roadblock of absence. That's in chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. And then second, how to stay upright in the tremors of affliction. How to stay upright in the tremors of affliction. That's what we'll see in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. And all of this, I hope we leave convinced in our hearts that we need the joyful fellowship of our church and we will do everything in our power to make the most of it. Let's begin in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 2. How to get around the roadblock of absence. The passage begins with a shift right there in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, if you remember last week as Alfie so capably preached, the attention of our passage ended with Paul describing this Jewish opposition that uh, was causing persecution and problems for the church. Now it's shifting with that word, but the attention is turning to Paul himself and more particularly to Paul's absence from the Thessalonian church during their time of trial. It's described there as he has been ripped away from them. The, the word is a, a very descriptive word. It's the, literally to be orphaned. You can think of the horrible pain of a child that is ripped away from their parents and orphaned. That's the way Paul describes what happened to him in the Thessalonian church. You remember back to that church. From the very beginning, it was born in affliction. Paul was not in town with them for very long before persecution was whipped up into a frenzy and he had to be ushered out of town for his own safety. Here he describes that not just as a minor inconvenience. No, it's something that literally tore his heart. It was as painful as it was. Even if his body is now no longer with them, his heart, even his broken heart, is right there with them. See, in verse 17, we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart. Even if Paul, through circumstance and persecution, can be taken in body from them, his heart cannot be removed from this delicate church plant 
that he cares so deeply for. You can see how much he cares for this church plant in the way he heaps up phrases describing his work to tirelessly try to get back to the Thessalonians. He says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. You get this picture of an apostle, a powerful apostle Paul doing everything in his power to get back to this church he loves. Paul loves this church dearly. He's doing everything he can to get back to them, and yet something's stopping him. Did you notice that? But Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. You might say Satan threw up a roadblock that the Apostle Paul, even, as powerful as he is, can't get around. The word used there for hindered is the same word that might be used for an army that breaks a road to prevent the advance of another army toward a city. You might say that Satan dynamited the mountain pass, that he knocked over the bridge. He made an impassable obstacle for Paul to traverse to get back to this church. We don't talk a lot about Satan these days. People are embarrassed by the idea of a spiritual being behind evil orchestrating events against believers and yet the bible is not at all embarrassed by the reality of the devil he is real he's personal he's powerful and he is a spiritual being whose sole purpose is to oppose god's kingdom in every way he can he is the apex predator of the spiritual realm he loves to divide and conquer the church, to separate the shepherd from the flock, the sheep from the rest of the flock, and once they are isolated, to feast. Satan's tactics are well known, both throughout scripture and throughout the history of the church. Here, apparently, his efforts are so effective that even the apostle Paul can't just through spiritual might overcome him and make his way back to the Thessalonians. We, we don't know exactly the specifics how Satan did this or how Paul was unable to overcome this spiritual roadblock. We just know it was there and it was keeping Paul from this church. So what do you do when you run into a spiritual roadblock like that? Well, certainly you keep your heart where it's supposed to be. You long for the church. Certainly you work tirelessly like Paul did, trying to get back to it, not giving up. But there's a, something else we need to notice that Paul does. Paul looks beyond being in person with this church. Look in verses 19 through 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. How does Paul keep the motivation up to keep bumping his head against this spiritual barrier, trying to find a way back to this church? 
He looks beyond the physical meeting with the Thessalonians, as sweet as that would be. And he looks toward that final meeting that all Christians are heading toward. To the day when the king of kings comes. And he comes to hold court and bring all to the judgment. To the final day. He looks forward to the heavenly assembly when all those who are in Christ Jesus are gathered at his feet. And in that vision, Paul sees something in this Thessalonian church that is priceless. He sees a crown of boasting. He sees joy. He sees glory. Paul sees this Thessalonian church as trophies of grace as confirmation that he has been faithful in his ministry and that they are proof that Jesus actually has used him. And it will be so sweet that all the earthly joys we can summon up as metaphors don't come close to capturing his glorious joy in that moment. It'll be better than an athlete proudly holding up a trophy after a victory. It'll be better than a soldier with all the honor of having a medal pinned to its chest for valor. It'll be better than a proud parent watching their child having grown and graduated and thrive as an adult. Paul looks forward with eyes of faith past that earthly meeting to the final meeting on the last day when the joy of Christ's church will be complete. So what should we take from Paul's getting around the spiritual roadblock of absence? Well, I think one thing that we should learn is to be motivated by the joy of fellowship. We need to realize that we should not just be concerned with our own faith and the outcome of our faith, that is getting to heaven ourselves. We are also part of how God gets others to those blessed heavenly gates. He saves us, but he doesn't save us alone. He saves us into a people, a people called the church. God uses each and every one of us. He uses us to encourage and exhort and protect, to bring each other safely to that day. And there will be an eternal joy that we will have in seeing those trophies of grace on the final day. Now, let me ask you, do you think of what you do in your local church as having eternal value like that? Do you think of every prayer that you pray for a discouraged member as part of God's grace to help them endure to the final day? Do you think of your singing in a gathered assembly as part of what God will use to fortify a weakening heart to make it faithfully to the final day? Do you think of your words of encouragement and exhortation as the very words of God to his feeble and weak people in need of strengthening. That's how Paul thought of the church. 
I hope each and every one of us would have that same view, that we would be motivated by the joy of the final everlasting fellowship as we do life together as a church. I think there's also a lesson here from Paul on the more practical level, to make the most of the fellowship that's available to us. Make the most of the fellowship available to us. I mean, Paul's heart was in the right place with the Thessalonians, but his body was not. And that was not his preference. I I know right now there are many of us, even as we have begun gathering again in our building, there are many of us that are unable to do so. And that may be for very, very good reasons. My hope is that you won't be discouraged and certainly that none of us will feel guilty about that. But instead that you would be resolved to make the most of the strategies for fellowship that are available to you. Now, as we'll see in a moment, Paul wasn't able to be there himself, so he sent Timothy. Maybe you can't send a Timothy, but maybe you can send a text to someone in our church membership to encourage them. I certainly hope you're willing to put up with me preaching over a video, even if you're watching that by yourself in your home. Now, I am the first to admit, this is not the ideal situation, but it is a lot better than not being able to preach to you at all. Let's make the best of what the Lord has given us and let's maximize the fellowship that's possible in the circumstances we're in. Now, if you're here and you're present on this Sunday morning, I hope you are resolved to use your ministry of presence to its maximum. At its best, we are supposed to exhort each other in person as Paul describes face to face. And by God's grace, you're able to do that this very morning. Now, at the end of the service, we will give you some instructions on how you can do that in a safe way. Um, But I encourage you to carve out a little time, stick around after church, listen to the instructions, and see the people that are here in your presence as 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 here sent by God for you to do ministry with right here and right now. The ministry of presence that Paul wanted so much is something you get to do this morning. So let's make, take advantage of it. Finally, let's also remember, there's a spiritual dimension to absence. There's a spiritual dimension to absence. You know, the enemy loves to divide and conquer. And he, would, I'm sure, is having a field day with the absence created by this COVID pandemic and all the spiritual implications for people separated from their church families as a result. Let's realize that our church is no exception. We are vulnerable during this time. So this should be a call for us to engage in that spiritual battle, to pray, to pray for the unity and protection of our church and particularly for those who are unable to benefit from the ministry of presence in person for maybe even some time. Uh, One way you can do that is to pick up your membership directory um, and just go through and especially pay attention to people that you suspect might not be able to gather back with our church for some time. Pray that the Lord would sustain them. Pray that they would find encouragement through someone either being a Timothy or sending a text to them. And see if there might be some way the Lord is laying on your heart to encourage them directly yourself. Well, we see here how Paul gets around that 
uh, roadblock of absence. It's a difficult one to get around, but he does find a way to, be, to have fellowship with this church. And as difficult as absence is, there's something that's even worse. That brings us to our second point. How to stay upright in the tremors of affliction. How to stay upright in the tremors of affliction. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, what scares the Apostle Paul? My guess is not much. He was a brave, grounded brother in Christ if there ever was one. And yet, in this passage, we are told there's something that keeps the Apostle Paul up at night. The danger of affliction on this dear church. This section uh, repeats the same things twice, so I'm going to go through it topically instead of verse by verse. In verses 3 through 5, Paul outlines the danger facing this Thessalonian church. He's worried that they might be moved by afflictions, moved by these afflictions. He's worried that their suffering might be so bad that they topple over like a building in an earthquake. He says it another way down in verse 5. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor had been in vain. He sees suffering, persecution, affliction as a tool in the hands of the enemy Satan to destroy this delicate, dear church. Apostle Paul understands the danger that suffering, affliction, causes in the life of a church. Pastor Wang Min Dao is a great example of how suffering can wear even the mightiest heroes of the faith down. He had endured much suffering already, resisting the communists. And yet, once he was thrown in prison, he began to, uh, to have wave after wave of discouragement blow over him. Certainly, the torture and the imprisonment were bad. The absence from his church was nearly unbearable. But the thought of his wife suffering, concern for her, and it appearing as if there was no way out for him, over time, it broke the dear pastor down. He cracked under the communist pressure. He signed a confession affirming the communist version of the gospel. After his captors knew that they had won a victory over him mentally, they released him with the charge to go and be their preacher and to propagate their propaganda. Thankfully, over the course of several months, the brother came to his senses and realized the shameful act that he had participated in. He was so convicted by it that he actually went back to his jailers and renounced his confession and told them to put him back in jail. I'm thankful that Pastor Wang Min Dao realized his mistake and joyfully took his persecution as a result. He spent the vast majority of his life in jail from that point forward. What we can learn from Pastor Wing Dao is, Ming Dao is what the Apostle Paul is concerned with. Suffering sometimes can build faith, but there are many times where suffering tears it down. The Apostle Paul knows this, and so he is concerned for this dear church that the persecution they have been enduring in his absence might be too much for them, so he has two strategies 
to keep them from toppling over in the tremors of affliction. Those two strategies, the first in verses one through two, a person, Paul sends his beloved son, Timothy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel, to establish and exhort you in the faith. It was a big sacrifice for Paul to send Timothy. He loved Timothy. He was his only co-worker in Athens. And yet Paul was willing to endure the isolation if it meant helping his church, dear church, the Thessalonians. He, he sent Timothy with uh, one task described two ways. He is to exhort and establish, which is another way of saying he is to keep this church from toppling over. He is to help them to remain faithful. That idea of establishing gets right to that word for moved. It's the opposite of it. If a, a building could be unstable in an earthquake, a building that is established is rock steady. Timothy's going to get down and dirty and do the work in their hearts to make sure they do not topple over from this affliction. That second word, exhort, shows us that this is a gentle pastoral ministry of presence. Timothy's going to do exactly what Paul wishes he could do. He is going to put his arm around them. He's going to weep with them. And he's going to point them to Jesus gently and humbly and in a way that will, uh, <clears throat> that will uh, fortify their souls. There's a, a second strategy that Paul employs. The first is a person, Timothy. The second is a prophecy in verses 3 through 4. Turns out that Paul had already prepared the Thessalonians for the reality that suffering was coming. He said that we, that we were destined for this. All Christians are, uh, are uh, destined to suffer because we follow a crucified Messiah. He tells them that we kept telling you beforehand that this would happen. This isn't Paul saying, I told you so. This is him reminding them of something he carefully taught them. Well, like a, a parent that prepares a child for the pain of a shot by telling them it'll, it'll hurt for a moment and then it'll be over. Paul reminds them that nothing unusual is happening to them. God is not angry with them. Christ has not forsaken them. No, difficulty is part of what it means to be a Christian. And God will surely give them the grace to endure. Now let's admit, there has been much suffering that our church and all the church around the world has endured during this COVID pandemic. Our own congregation has lost husbands and parents. We have lost the comfort of family and friends. We have seen our finances and our professional futures cast into doubt. Our hearts have been buffeted by the waves of anxiety and depression again and again and again. We've even been kept from coming together as a body for months at a time to find strength in the gathering of the church. Now in all this, we need to realize that in some senses, this is normal Christianity. Our Lord Jesus told us, in this world you will have trouble. 
So in some sense, we should expect that things like this will happen, even if a global pandemic has never quite happened like this. Now, that doesn't take the pain away, but it does help to put it in perspective. Remember, we follow a crucified Messiah, and that means we will suffer as we pick up our cross and follow him. Now, if you're listening this morning and you are not a Christian, I have a question for you. What do you make of suffering? Why do people suffer? And if we're just bouncing molecules and pain and anguish, they're just electrical impulses in the human body. They really don't matter much. And yet I think during this COVID pandemic, it's become obvious that human suffering is a great tragedy when it happens. The Bible teaches us that our suffering is a result of something, our rebellion against the God who made us, that our bodies and this whole world and even our minds and our hearts are under a curse, a curse that we deserve as we rebel against our creator. Now, our hope is not to escape suffering. No, our hope is to escape the judgment of this God. And that's what Jesus' coming is all about. Jesus himself did not shy away from suffering. He himself endured unjust suffering, being murdered on a cross. He did that to take our sins on himself, transferring our guilt onto him as God punished him in our place. And in so doing, as he died on the cross, Jesus bought redemption from suffering. When he came back from the grave three days later, he promised anyone that believes in him won't have this earthly life as the end of their existence. Instead, they will have an eternal life with him, free of suffering forever, in a new heavens, in a new earth. A friend, if that sounds good to you, you can have it today. But you need to find out what it means to meet this Jesus yourself and put your trust in him. Come talk to one of us if you're here in person. If you're online, send us a message. We'd love to have a conversation with you about how you can put your trust in Jesus during this time of suffering. Now, for all of us here as a church, especially those who are gathered this morning, I hope that this COVID season has helped you to realize that we should never take fellowship in our church for granted. That the fact that we get to gather together is a great blessing from God, and it's something that we must make the most of. Brothers and sisters, you were made for this fellowship. You will suffer without it. You, your heart should long for it. And when you make the most of it, you will find a joy that even the absence and afflictions of this life can't touch. I hope it's a joyful thing for you to be back with your church family this morning. And I hope you're resolved, no matter how difficult it may be, to participate in the joyful fellowship of your church, however the Lord will allow you to. In a moment, we're going to sing a song Oh, how good it is. I want to point your attention to some of its words. Oh, how good it is on this journey we share to rejoice with the happy and weep with those who mourn. For the weak find strength, the afflicted find grace when we offer the blessing of belonging. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, how good it is to be part of the fellowship of your local church. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Would you help us to make the most of the fellowship that we have, whether that be in person for some of us, or through text messages, emails, Zoom calls, or whatever way we can find for the rest of us. Grant us a vision of that joy we will have gathered at your feet on the final day. Keep us until that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.